Scripture reading uh, for this morning is Psalm 103, and I'm going to read the entire psalm. If you haven't picked up on it already, and it should be fairly obvious if you've looked at the bulletin, we are considering the holiness of God and our holiness uh, this morning. And so the songs that we've been singing have been focused on both the holiness of God and our response to the holiness of God. Psalm 103. This is a psalm of David. Oh, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to the children's children to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all the hosts, his ministers, who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we want to acknowledge that you are a holy God. We have proclaimed that in our worship, in singing, and now my desire is, Father, that we worship you uh, rightly as we consider your word. And Father, when I mean, when I say consider, I mean when we accept it, when we hear it and we believe it and we trust you because you are a holy God, and a holy God cannot lie. A holy God cannot break a promise. And so we rest in that. We rest in the promise of righteousness that is by faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. We give our prayer to you. Amen. So this is uh, a topic this morning that I've been thinking about for quite some time. Um, it's not uncommon for me to preach the first Sunday of a new year, and that's simply because 
our pastor and his family, uh, not just Pastor Jeremy, but pastors prior to him, oftentimes would be out of town, and so I had the opportunity to preach. And I, I count it a privilege. And I trust that you will understand that my desire is to communicate God's word, not Wayne's word. So if there's any part of this that sounds like Wayne's word, would, would you come up to me afterwards and get clarification? Because that's not the goal at all. The goal is to communicate what God says, the way God wants it said, and that's what my prayer has been uh, this week. The key verse that we're looking at this morning is a statement from Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, which is part of a longer discourse called the Sermon on the Mount. And in a moment, we're going to talk about some pieces of that that lead up to verse 48. But Jesus says to those who desire to follow him, um, you must be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. That should result in some kind of response. Um, that should cause us to stop and think carefully. This morning, my goal is to help us explore the holiness of God and how it should transform our worship and our lives. So we're going to look at the holiness of God. We're going to look at our own lack thereof of holiness. And we're going to consider what our response should be in light of the fact that God is a holy God. So what does it mean to be perfect? Well, you know, apparently there are people that have the ability to determine what a perfect diamond is. Now, every diamond I've ever looked at with the naked eye, I assume it's perfect. But if you examine any diamond closely with the right tools, you'll determine, you'll discover that uh, there are very few, if any, perfect diamonds. I'm sure there must be some. Um, I know grandmothers, okay? I'm married to a grandmother. Sometimes grandmothers think their grandchild is a perfect angel. Now, what they mean by that is their grandchild is delightful and sweet and they adore them. But what they're not saying, I trust, is that their grandchild is perfect. Is that right, Wendy? Noah's delightful, but he's not perfect. I didn't get a perfect ACT score when I was in high school preparing to go into college. A perfect score is 36. I don't know why they picked that number. 36 seems like a low target, but apparently that's a hard target to hit. Perfect bowling score is a score of 300. I'm really happy if I can bowl a spare, and it's been a long time since I did any bowling. You get a perfect score, that's really hard to do. You know, perfection in anything is not easy. A, a, perfect credit, a perfect credit score, which by the way, I don't care about ours. Uh, you know, I know some of you are still young and you need to get mortgage loans and all that stuff, and a, a credit score may help you. But if you want to be perfect, okay, and never get turned down for any kind of credit, make your score 850, okay? Ours is actually really, really good, and I don't care. You know why it's good? Because we don't do dumb things. You want a good credit score? Don't do dumb things with money, okay? That's, that's in a little aside. That's not in my notes. 
And then another score that I took, you know, in high school in order to figure out whether or not I was college material was the SAT. And a perfect score is 1,600. I didn't get that. Actually, there's somebody that's in jeopardy right now. The reigning champion has or had an SAT score of 1,600. And it's not surprising given her success in answering questions. So let me give you some synonyms for perfect so that we understand what perfection really means. Complete. Nothing's missing. Something as perfect as complete. It's faultless, flawless, ideal, impeccable, unblemished. That's what perfect is. And by the way, those words all describe God, a holy God. He's complete, he's faultless, he's flawless, he's, he's the ideal, he's impeccable, he's unblemished. The alternative is what you and I are. Deficient, inadequate, incomplete, insufficient, fallible, blemished, blemished, and spoiled. That's what we are. So we need to understand, we need to be reminded, and I know most of you know this, we're sinners, and God is holy. He is without sin. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to turn there, uh, and you may as well. You don't have to. I just want to point out some things from the text because it's important to understand the context of the command that Jesus gives in verse 48. In verse 48, I'm going to read that first. He says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Without actually going too much further, we should all be able to acknowledge, whoa, I can't do that. But we'll explore that a little bit in a moment. In verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said something remarkable. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he's suggesting to those that are listening to him, in fact, he's more than suggesting, he's declaring, I'm perfect. I'm going to fulfill all the law. I'm not going to violate any of the law. And then in verse 20, he says to those that are listening, your righteousness has to be greater than the most law-abiding citizens you know, the Pharisees. Unless your righteousness is above, just think about their listeners. They really respected the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And Jesus is saying, you got to do better than they do. you got to do better than the most law-abiding. So that, you know what? Comparisons aren't any good when it comes to God. Comparing one another, that's a bad comparison. Compare yourself to a holy God and you're starting to get a good picture. In verses 21 through 26, Jesus says, to be perfect, you don't have unrighteous anger and you don't insult a brother because that's a failure to be perfect. Has anybody here never insulted anyone? I doubt it. Whether intentionally or not, we have all insulted someone else. Number four, verses 27 through 30, all of this is leading up to be perfect. 
He's, he's setting the ground. He's setting the foundation so that we understand, oh, I can't do this. Lustful thinking and desires cause you to fail the perfection standard of all kinds, no matter what it is. Lust is a failure. Most of the divorces in the U.S. are a failure of marriage perfection, as declared in verses 31 and 32. Now that's not to say that there aren't some gracious exceptions that God has provided, but his desire is for a man and a woman who marry to remain together and love each other. Not just remain and bear with one another and put up with one another, but it's proactive. It's love one another. I think we all failed. All of, a, all of the promise you, promises you make, you must keep. All of them. It doesn't matter if you had good intentions and you intended to do it. If you don't keep your promise, you broke your promise, therefore you failed. That's verses 33 through 37. Any kind of retalia- retaliation and a failure to be generous is falling short of being perfect. Okay, now we're creeping into the money area. Oh my. And, you know, that person did this to me, so I'm going to give them a double dose back. Well, then we're not perfect if we do that. You have to be, in order to be perfect, you have to love your enemies. Oh well, okay. I'm sorry, but, you know, that shouldn't be in there. Well, actually, it should be. Because a holy God loves his enemies. All of them. They bear his image. He cares about them. He lets rain fall on the just and the unjust. That's evidence that he is loving to his enemies. So Jesus says, to wrap this all up, be perfect. So the, the score that we must attain is impossible to, to achieve. Uh, image bearers are to be good representatives of the real thing. God created man in his image, and he created woman in his image, and we are to be image bearers. That is, we are to rightly image him. And any time that we are less than imaging him, we are sinning. That's the reality. So I failed to image him on thousands, probably multi-millions of times. I failed to be holy. Eight eight times in Scripture, God says, Be holy, for I am holy. And we're going to look at a couple of them. We must be perfect in forgiveness. Here's what it says in Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. All those things that he talked about in the sermon. Okay, Paul is summarizing them to the church in Colossae. And then after he says forgiving each other, he says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. In other words, to be perfect, you forgive exactly 
at the level, at the height, at the frequency, at the consistency of God's forgiveness to you. I am to do the same thing. Okay, I'm, I'm preaching to myself. I hope you understand that. Nothing I say is because I've attained, <laughs> but I press on. Luke chapter 6, verses 35 and 36. Here's what Jesus says. But love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. In other words, you will image your Father. For he is kind to the ungrateful <laughs> and to the evil. He's kind. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So Jesus is telling those that are listening, you want to be like your Father? Be really merciful, just like Him. That's how you be perfect. You do that. Leviticus 11, verse 45. I believe this is the first place where it actually says, be holy for I am holy. Leviticus 11.45 says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. I selected you. You are mine. I'm holy. You be holy too. That, uh, that has a New Testament application, by the way. That's not just to these people from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 19.2, in case they didn't hear it as somebody was reading it to the congregation, this is what God says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, they should be thinking, we're in trouble. We're in big trouble. And if it wasn't for the sacrifices that God provided a blood sacrifice, they were in terrible, terrible straits. Their destiny was not a good one. What we are in our hearts is how we will conduct our lives, and our words flow from our hearts. And that's why 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16 are so strong. It says, but as he who called you is holy, and this is speaking to believers, okay? This is the persecuted church that Peter is speaking to in 1 Peter chapter 1. And he's reminding them, just like the Father who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So it is not sufficient just to be internally holy. It should spill out. When you get jostled, Holiness should spill out. Behaving like the Father should spill out. And he refers to Leviticus. He says, you also be holy in your conduct since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So the, the command stands. The command stands in the Old Testament before the finished work of Christ and the command still stands. Command hasn't changed in the New Testament. Jesus lived a life of perfection. I always appreciate when I'm reading through the Gospel of John and Jesus and John the Baptist are having some interactions. John identifies Jesus this way. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Now they were all, when they went to provide sacrifices, all through all of the years, since that sacrificial system had been set up, they were required to find from their herd, from their flock, a perfect lamb, a male lamb, a lamb without blemish. Now we, we recognize that finding a perfect lamb, you know, they were, they were getting the best of the best that they got. They weren't bringing lame lambs. They weren't bringing blemish lambs. They weren't bringing lambs that were a failure. They were bringing the best. So consider this. What type of lamb would the holy God, who has his pick of all lambs that are possible lamb choices, what kind of lamb would he pick? He'd pick a perfect lamb. A lamb without blemish, without any spot. And all of the Old Testament, the lamb was male, perfect, without blemishes, and it wasn't guilty of any crime. It was a substitute. It stood in the place of the sinner. John the Baptist declared, as I said earlier, in John 1, verse 29, it says this, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And he didn't end there. He said, Who takes away the sin of the world. So if God required unblemished lambs in the Old Testament as an adequate sacrifice for sin, then any lamb he would provide would meet those requirements. His perfect his perfection were prophesied in Isaiah in contrast to our wickedness. We often read Isaiah 53, but sometimes I think maybe we read it a little bit too fast. So I just want to point out two verses. Verse 6 of Isaiah 53 says this, All we, notice all, again that should be obvious, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So in Isaiah 53, talking about Messiah, God is taking all of our sin and he's putting it on the perfect lamb. In verse 9 it says, And he, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. It's important that we don't miss that, that there was no deceit in his mouth because in James it says that if a man is perfect in his words, he's perfect in every way. Why is that? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus was perfect. He was the perfect Lamb of God. And we can even go to those who we wouldn't normally call on as witnesses and say, could you testify on behalf of Jesus? Uh, unknowingly, Pontius Pilate testified in favor of Jesus. He said in Luke chapter 23, verse 14, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Now, of course, he didn't examine all of Jesus' life, but he had heard about him. He had heard what he was doing. And he said, all your charges are trumped up. These are all false charges. And then there's another one that you normally don't call to the witness stand, but God chose to call a thief to the witness stand. And on the cross, one of the thieves said in Luke chapter 23, verse 41, 
this man has done nothing wrong. And how did he know that? Well, he was looking at and observing the way the Son of Man sacrificed his life. And he, by faith, asked for mercy from the perfect Lamb. And he received mercy from the perfect Lamb. So, Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What are the possible responses? Here's the first one. This is impossible. And actually, that's a pretty good starting response. That's where we should probably all start. The second one is, um, I keep the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you've ever met anybody that declared that. I have. Cindy and I had a neighbor. We were trying to minister to this widow lady and encourage her. We took her shopping. We went over and helped her clean her apartment when she burned something on the stove and there was smoke all over the ceiling. And so we, we had a heart for her. We wanted to share the gospel with her. And uh, when we were sharing the gospel with her, she said, I don't need the gospel. I've kept all the commandments. So that's a possible response. Sadly, when I asked her, well, what are the Ten Commandments? Since you keep them, you must know what they are. And she couldn't. She couldn't tell us what they were. I mean, she could have told us that you're not supposed to murder, things like that, but she really couldn't tell us what the Ten Commandments were. Another possible response is, I think I could do better than I am now, so I'll just set some New Year's resolutions, which seems appropriate for early on in January of 2022. Okay, I can do better. But here's the problem with that response. Yes, doing better is, is a, a nice, commendable thing, but you've already messed up. You've already bro I've already broken a command. In fact, it's clear in the Scriptures, if you break one, you've broken the law. The law is a unit. You break one, you, you just you blew it. So that response is goofy. The next one is, got some merit. When the Lord takes me to heaven, I will be like him. And that is true. We will see him like he is. We will have glorified bodies like his. We will be free from sin. And so, in a sense, that's true. But if we stop there, we've missed some important things in our lives. And the fifth one is, this is possible. And I submit to you that not only is our holiness situationally, positionally, before God possible, but our walk in holiness is as well. Not too long ago, I received a book, and the, the, the entire thesis of the book was that we've believed a lie. And I thought, really? What, what lie have Christians believed? And the, and the answer was this. We believe we can't be holy. And I'm afraid far too many of us, although we wouldn't say that we can't be, you know, we're striving to be. You know, we confess our sins, he's faithful, he forgives us, so then we're holy. But we don't have the mindset oftentimes, I don't have the mindset that I can be holy. I can be like Jesus. Jesus wants me to be like him. Now, will I fail? Yes, yes. I, I'm not suggesting that I can be sinless for the rest of my breathing years. 
But I can be holy. I can be. Here's the problem. God created a perfect world and declared it good. But Adam and Eve decided to be satisfied with something that God had forbidden. They tried to hide from God because they realized their selfish and arrogant disobedience caused them to be unholy. God's promise of death for their failure to obey was the just wage for their disobedience. So, I'm going to belabor the point. What is God's perfection? And I want to look at six passages just to cement home for us that when we sing, when we sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and these other songs that we've already sung that declare His holiness, and the Psalm 103 that we read declares His holiness and His love and His goodness, let's not lose sight of how deep and broad and and wonderful His holiness is. John in his first epistle, verse three, chapter 3, verse 5 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And, and we all agree with that, right? I mean, if you're a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've placed your faith and are placing your faith in the finished work of Christ, you know that he appeared to take away sins. And then he concludes with this, And in him there is no sin. He came to take away your sin, my sin, and in him there is no sin, which means he was the perfect lamb. Peter says the same thing. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. No one ever heard Jesus say anything wrong. Well, that's because in John chapter 1, when it introduces Jesus as in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, that means He's perfect. And He was full of grace and truth. And when you're full of grace and truth, what spills out is not deceit. And that's why 1 Peter 2.22 says He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. And let me tell you, the disciples were a rowdy, difficult bunch. Jesus did not join them in their rowdiness. I mean, he enjoyed good times. He went to banquets. He spent time with sinners and tax collectors. He got accused of being, you know, with the wrong crowd. But that's only because he was the perfect lamb that loved them. Not, he never joined in in their sin, but he loved them enough to expose them to his righteousness. Hebrews 4.15, the author of Hebrews says this about our high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Ah, this is so important. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Every respect that you've been tempted, he was tempted. But it says, yet without sin. Why is that? Because he's a holy God. He is without sin, no deceit in his mouth. Numbers 23, verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, or the son, or the son, a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? You don't really have to go, <laughs> you can go into any one of the books of the Old Testament or the New Testament. And if God made a promise, he kept it. He kept the 
very first promise that he made in Genesis, and he's going to keep the very last promise he made in the book of Revelation. And all of the, test, all the, all of the promises that he made to Abraham, to David, to his people, Israel, he's keeping. And he's kept most of them already. He's a God of truth. He's not a liar. That's our holy God. Actually, that should, if you are a follower of Christ, that should just really cause you to breathe a sigh of relief that he keeps his promises. Because we don't. We, we fail on that count, but, but he doesn't. 1 Samuel 15, 29 says, And also the glory of Israel, that is God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. You and I have regrets. There are things I've said and done or didn't do that I should have done that I regret. God, as perfect, no regrets. Everything he does is perfect. Every word he speaks is promise. Perfect. Every promise he gives, he keeps. And then finally, we are reminded by James, a very practical book, James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God gets no blame for anything related to our sinfulness and our unholiness. He gets all the credit for rescuing us from our lack thereof. I like what Paul says in Titus, because this theme is just repeated. I could give you lots of verses in the interest of time. I'm not giving you all the ones that I considered. But I like what Paul says to young Titus. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Paul says, you want to believe what I'm saying? I'm telling you what God says, and he doesn't lie. That's why it's so important for us to read God's word. So why does this matter? I mean, yes, okay, I don't think anybody here, with maybe a, a few small exceptions, would say, well, I, I didn't think God was holy. If, you, if you're a believer in Jesus, certainly you know God is holy, and, and you know he wants you to be holy, right? And you know you're not. You're not perfect. So I haven't told you anything really new, but I've been kind of laying the stage here for you, okay? And we're getting there. Why does this matter? The book of Leviticus, do you know Warren Wiersbe? How many of you have heard of Warren Wiersbe? Okay. Every time Warren Wiersbe wrote a commentary, he started with the word be, B-E, okay? And then he put a word after that to help his reader know what the overall theme of that book was. So sometimes uh, Brother Tony and I, when we greet each other, um, he says, to me be wise, because there actually was a book written that uh, tells us to be wise, and Warren Wiersbe wrote a commentary on be wise, and he's got one on be joyful and be free, and he also wrote one about the book of Leviticus, and the book of Leviticus, the B word is be 
holy. So God devoted an entire book and lots of verses outside of that book about being holy. And here's what Warren Wiersbe says in chapter 13, which is kind of summarizing the entire book of his commentary on Leviticus. Whenever we minimize the holiness of God, we're in danger of minimizing human sinfulness. And the combination of these two errors results in minimizing the cross of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, we're going to celebrate this morning. If we want to preach the gospel, we must have a holy God who hates sin and has done something about it at great cost to himself. We must. It is because God is holy as well as loving that the atonement is provided, wrote theologian Carl F. H. Henry. God is holy. He's worthy of our worship. We must understand God's holiness so that we understand, so that I understand, so that you understand sinfulness, our sinfulness, my sinfulness. In order to really understand the importance, the significance, the beauty of the cross, we must understand God's holiness. We must. To understand why he was willing to be a sacrifice for our sins and to bring us to the point of repentance that leads to salvation, we must understand his holiness. It's not negotiable. It's a requirement. So how do I achieve perfection? That's a legitimate question. If, if Jesus says, be holy like your heavenly Father, he's given us a command and he doesn't ask us to do anything that he doesn't equip us for. Never. He always provides. So, number one, I need to know why God created me. God created me to be in his image, like him. I have an everlasting future, and it's either an everlasting life free of sin and death, or it's an everlasting punishment dying in my sin. So I need to understand to really respond to this business of being perfect, I need to understand why God created me. He created me to image him, to be like his son. Number two, I have to admit that I'm flawed and defiled. I'm no longer a good image of God. Apart, you know, before I was a, when I was a kid, I had lots of misguided Sunday school teachers tell me I was a good boy. That, if you're a Sunday school teacher, that's the worst thing you can tell to a, a kid. You're a good boy. No, you, yeah, in a sense, maybe they're good, right? I mean, if they're not causing a lot of commotion in class, you're a good boy. I needed to hear, Wayne, you're a sinner. Let me read from uh, Romans and point a few things out to you about your, your standing before God, a holy God. That never happened. And I need to realize I'm unable, based on my own merit, any New Year's resolutions, self-improvement efforts, to be holy. I, I can't do it myself. So in order for me to achieve perfection, I need to understand this is not a solo thing that I'm going to do. I can't do it by myself. I'm, I'm, I'm going to fail. 
If it's left up to me, uh, I'm sorry. It, it's all over. Hebrews 12.14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace. I can't do that. In my natural self, you know, some people irritate me. When we were in Hawaii, the, the people at the car rental place, which shall remain unnamed, but I'll tell you, who, you know, if you come up to me later, I'll tell you which one it is. They just irritated me. Well, I wasn't striving for peace. I was striving for my satisfaction. <laughs> Don't put me through the ringer. I already reserved this car. You're making it more difficult than it needs to be. Okay, so you see, right? You see? Accept God's perfection, number four. Accept God's perfection found in Christ alone by faith alone. Romans 3, verses 21 through 25. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So it's not the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to, to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. In other words, the very first thing after I realize I'm a sinner and I'm not holy and I stand before a holy God who's going to condemn me for my sins justly is to respond in faith to the gift he has provided. Say, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve this. I can't measure up. Christ died for me. He took my sins. He bore my sins in his body on the tree. And now I should be dead to sin and alive in Christ. That's step number one. And then I need to understand that my, uh, that I need to understand that my continuing blameless existence is only because of God's work. So, I still have responsibility, but God is working on Wayne. And if you are a follower of Jesus, God is working on you. And here's what it says in Jude 24 and 25. This verse is often used as a benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless, before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. Amen. God says, I save you, and you get my righteousness. And then, by the way, I'm able to keep you from stumbling. And I'm going to present you faultless. Let that sink in. It's going to present you faultless. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But he's a holy God and he keeps his promises. Praise be to him. And then the other passage that I want you to look at is 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. We are to prepare for action daily. So one of the reasons I don't really care for New Year's resolutions is that most people make them in January and forget them by, what month would you suggest? 
January. A lot of them. Some people make it to February. <laughs> Some people might even make it to March. They're really disciplined, A-type personalities. But the reality is New Year's resolutions are pretty much a waste of time. Now, not a complete. I mean, there are some things we should resolve to do differently in the new year. Jonathan Edwards woke up every morning, and he had started to compile a list of things that he resolved. And he read it every morning. I resolved this, I resolved this, I resolved this. I re and they were all things that made him more look like his Savior. All of them. So here's what First Peter says. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. This is daily. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, a perfect lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. So what's your aim? When we go up to Jeff and Rita's farm, <clears throat> there's targets up there. There I am, pointing a gun. I'm pointing at a target. You'll notice that my target isn't Volta, and it's not Barbara, and it's not Jeff. They wouldn't want to be the target, right? That would be bad range behavior. I'm pointing at a target. So the question is, what's your aim? Your, will, your aim will be much improved if your target is unmoving. If your target is the unmoving holy God who cannot be moved, then your target is the right target. And Paul to the church in Corinth says this, we make it our aim to please him. So when we wake up in the morning, we set the resolution, Father, my aim is to please you. Tell me how I can do that. Help me to guard my heart. Help me to watch my language. Forgive me of my sin. Help me to forgive others. Lead me in the path of your righteousness. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one that makes the perfection possible in daily life. So we go back to the questions at the beginning. This is impossible. Yes, you are right. This is impossible. Apart from Christ, you, you, you lose. You can't win. Keep the law. Keep the Ten Commandments. Okay, here's my score. You, you, you can keep your own score to yourself, but there's ten, there are Ten Commandments. I've kept zero of them. How are you doing? I got a big goose egg. Not good. Resolve to do better? Well, I already broke the law. It's too late. Can't resolve to do better. I lost. 
Someday in the future? Yes, praise be to God. Someday in the future, I will be like him. And I'm being transformed, transformed to be more like him every, every day. Is this possible? Yes. But only as I prepare my mind for action, which is why I would submit to you that starting your day without God's word is like a recipe for disaster. And I know, you know, you've heard that a bazillion times from preachers. You know, read God's word. Read God's word. God's purpose, everything that God brings into our life is directed to one purpose. He has one purpose. That we might be conformed to the image of Christ. It's a quote from Erwin Lutzer. The main idea is this. The holiness of God should transform our worship here and now and during the rest of the life, our, our week, and our lives. We sang only a holy God before the message. During the Lord's Supper, we will be singing a good and gracious King. Holy, holy, Lord Almighty, good and gracious, good and gracious. Holy, holy, Lord Almighty, good and gracious King.